Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. All right, everyone, great to be with you again. Uh, We are in our third week in the Gospel of Matthew, what we're calling Matthew the King, Jesus Gospel. More than any other gospel, Matthew was used in the first 200 years of church history. It was the most read, copied, studied book. Um, And the reason for that is Matthew combines not just an understanding of what Jesus said, but the instruction from Jesus in how to live. So for the first 200 years of church history, when they were experiencing, when Christians and followers of Jesus were experiencing heavy persecution, uh, an overwhelming sort of reality around them, Matthew gave them more than any other gospel the tools they needed to live as a minority group in a hostile environment. And the reality is today we live in a hostile environment. If you are a follower of Jesus, of the way of Jesus, you are a minority in a hostile environment now. And uh, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but you know what our souls and our hearts and, and our lives long for is what Jesus described in Matthew eleven twenty eight, where he said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, All of us, our souls are longing and yearning for the kind of life Jesus talked about. And in the book of Matthew, we not only get the words of Jesus as we see them in Scripture, but the description of how to live into those words, how to integrate those words into our very life. The yoke that Jesus talked about in Matthew 11 is his teaching. It's specifically his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. But in order for us to understand the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, we have to have an understanding of the way Jesus saw the world, himself, and God. And so before Matthew gets to chapter 5, Matthew himself needs to sort of set a foundation for the teaching of Jesus. And that begins in chapter one, which is what we looked at last week. In chapter one, Matthew gives us this soaring theological description of the sovereignty of God and the nature of God, his mercy, his judgment, his faithfulness. In Matthew one, we learn that um, God, just by his very nature, Uh, is good, that God by his very nature is uh, so powerful and so so much larger than anything we walk through in our life, anything going on. God can redeem everything in our life. With every name in that genealogy, Matthew is giving an exclamation mark to the reality 
that nothing can stop God or his purposes for our lives, not even sin, not our greatest weakness or our greatest failure. God can and does redeem all things for good for those who are following him, who trust in him. And so Matthew is giving this soaring picture of the sovereignty of God. What else do we learn in Matthew one, that Matthew is saying what he's writing, number one, is the book of the Genesis of Jesus. Matthew's bringing us back to Genesis. We talked about that last week. So Matthew is saying, look, this is the Genesis of Jesus Christ. God is going to renew and restart his vision for humanity on the earth and himself how humanity was meant to rule and reign as representatives of God on the earth is being restarted. There's a new Genesis happening with Jesus. Number two, Matthew's genealogy is Matthew's sermon on the sovereignty of God, his divine nature and his character, and that we learn that God's timing is not our timing, that God always works in his perfect timing and that God can take everything from our life, the worst of the worst of the worst and redeem it for good for his purposes. But we must surrender our picture and image of how we want God to work and when we want him to accomplish what we want him to accomplish in our life. Third, in the birth story of Matthew 1, we see that God, Matthew is bringing together already a theology of God in its, in his triune nature. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all in view in Matthew 1. In the birth story in Matthew 1, we see in uh, the scandal of Mary's pregnancy, the details around her pregnancy, that God's ways aren't our ways. So in the genealogy, we saw that God's timing is not always our timing, but he's always faithful in the birth story of Mary and Joseph that would have been a, a ripping scandal for their day that, that incurred great shame and judgment on them from those around them, that God's ways aren't our ways. We would never have done it the way that God did. N- not one of us would have dared do it the way that God did. And we see in this, in the picture of the sovereignty of God, in the majesty of God, that his ways aren't our ways. And in that uh, birth story, we see in the character and response of Joseph, the nature of the love of God, that God's love is the kind of love that covers a multitude of sins. God's love is the kind of love that, that brings us close, that covers us, not the kind of love that exposes and shames and ridicules and fault finds and criticizes, but God's love is the kind of love that covers us. And we see this in Joseph. And we see in um, in Jesus being described as Emmanuel with us, that God is so great, he could and did want to come down to this earth that had been ravaged by sin and unholiness and injustice, that God wasn't uh, unable to enter into our suffering and in our weakness and in our sin. He came to the earth to redeem it and to restore it, that God will go 
through immeasurable lengths in your life and in my life to restore and renew and redeem. There's nothing so broken about us, nothing so evil or vile that God cannot overcome, that God would not sort of enter into our space and walk with us through it. And in Matthew describing Jesus as the one who would save uh, Israel from their sins, he's throwing sort of their concept of the Messiah up on its head. Israel had been looking for a Messiah that would save them from the sins of others against them. They were looking for a Messiah that would overthrow evil government, overthrow a oppressive regime, overthrow the Roman government, a Messiah who would usher in a golden age for Israel uh, as it related to the nations around them on the earth. And Jesus says, and Matthew makes this point very saliently, he says that he will save you from your sins. The thrust of the gospel of Matthew and Jesus' teaching in it is that he has way more concern for what's happening in our heart than what's happening out there around us. And his invitation for us is to examine our own life before him, not ask him to bring justice and judgment and all of these things, uh, righteousness to the people around us, but first and foremost, the call of Jesus and Matthew. And Matthew's point in that statement is that Jesus cares first for what's happening in your heart, not what's happening in the world around you. He would save Israel from their sins, not Israel from the sins of those against them. And I read this quote, I'm gonna read it again from Charles Finney. This is a, a, a masterful and beautiful picture of the sovereignty of God, a, a subject matter that we're afraid of. In chapter one, we see the nature and character and sovereignty of God on display. And in chapter two, we're gonna see in Matthew what happens when humans are confronted with God himself. That's what we're going to see in chapter two. But I want to reread you this uh, quote from Charles Finney. Speaking of why we fear to talk about the sovereignty of God, Charles Finney says this, they have been led either by false teaching or in some way to conceive of the divine sovereignty as an iron and unreasonable despotism. That means absolute power or tyranny. That is, they have understood the doctrine of divine sovereignty to so represent God. They think that it represents this tyrannical, uh, dictatorial, uh, all-powerful, ruling iron fist. That's how people understand sometimes the sovereignty of God. They therefore fear and reject it, Finney says. But let it be remembered and forever understood to the eternal joy an unspeakable consolation of all holy beings that God's sovereignty is nothing else than infinite love. Okay, again, God's sovereignty is nothing else than infinite love directed by infinite knowledge. This is that love that covers, that we see in Joseph's response to Mary. In such disposal of events as to secure the highest well-being of the universe, that in the whole details of creation, providence and grace, there is not a solitary measure of his that is not infinitely wise and good. This is the Jesus or the God that Jesus knew and trusted. 
This picture that Matthew is shaping of God in Matthew chapter one was the foundation for the life of Jesus that enabled Jesus to live the way he lived, that enabled Jesus to approach life and other people and himself the way that he did. So before we get into what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, we have to understand from Matthew what Jesus believed about God, how Jesus related to God. So let's just move into Matthew 2. I'm going to read just a part of it for us, and we're going to move on and just make some observations about this. Matthew 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. All right. Um, about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw this star as it rose and we have come to worship him. So Matthew's presenting us uh, with three sort of character representations here with Herod, the Magi, and Jesus himself. Herod uh, himself was religiously Jewish, but he was uh, ethnically Arab. Um, he was politically Roman. He was kind of a mishmash of all kinds of things. The, the Magi that are talked about here were astrologers. They were sorcerers, actually, that came from most likely Babylon. They were outsiders. And to the Jews that Matthew's writing to, the Magi were considered idolaters. They were considered sort of the low of the low, unclean, unfaithful, um, wicked uh, men, really. So we have this picture that Matthew's painting of these three key figures. We see in uh, the Magi, we see the outsider and the outcast, the sinner who's invited into the story. In Herod, we see the one who's in. Herod has the scriptures available to him. He is in the middle of this story. But his response to this new king who is born is very different than the Magi. And then we see Jesus himself in this picture. And in Jesus, Matthew's about to contrast these three different ways that humanity um, responds when confronted with God. The Magi respond to God under the power of his grace. Herod is a description of humanity responding to God under the power of sin. And Jesus the child is the picture of representative humanity, the new beginning of what humanity was meant to be always from the beginning. Jesus is shown us by Matthew to be the archetype for what it means to be truly human and to live surrendered to God's vision for your life on the earth. So Matthew 2 is giving us a picture of humanity coming to Christ in faith, as seen in the Magi, in rebellion, as seen in Herod, and what it looks like for uh, Jesus, the child, to walk in total surrender and dependence on God. This is what Matthew is giving us 
a picture of here. And we see, I just want to point out something in this story as it relates to the Magi. Matthew, I think, is creating a theology of God and his nature and character. Again, he's bringing us from chapter one into chapter two and continuing to bring clarity to and to shape and refine the character and nature of God. But he's giving us a theology of God and his nature and character that describes him as a God who's not limited by human unworthiness. God calls those who are most far away, like the sorcerers from Babylon, and considered most unworthy to be near his presence. God calls them to draw near to his son. And we see in the Magi what happens when you come near to the Son of God, when you come near to Jesus and the presence of God, we see in here a picture of what happens when our hearts are responsive and soft, when we're willing to yield our lives to the Lordship of Jesus. Matthew gives us a picture of what happens when we come into contact with the living Christ, accept the grace and mercy of God over our lives. And in so doing, we see in the Magi, the picture of worship, they fall to their knees and worship this foreign king, unworthy, despised, you know, um, outsiders from way far away come near to the king and their response is worship and adoration. Their response is when they encounter Jesus is to declare him Lord over even their lives. And this we see is a picture of one of the ways that humans can respond to the presence and person of Jesus. Their encounter was not just a new reality spiritually, the vertical, the worship, but it also was a new living reality. Matthew tells us that when they left Jesus, they went back another way. Herod had asked them to come back and report to him what they had seen and to tell him where this king was and Instead, they go back another way. And in that, Matthew is painting us a picture of what it means to walk in repentance. Repentance, number one, or letter A, it replaces the worship of self with worship of God. And two, it changes the way we think about our thinking. It brings us into God's way of seeing and viewing the world. It changes how we think about him and about ourselves and about others. Repentance is turning and going the other way. And this is what the Magi did in response to Jesus. And Herod, this man who's racially Arab and religiously Jewish and culturally Greek and politically Roman, we see what happens when humanity responds to Jesus out of our sinful, fallen nature? And what happens when we're confronted with Jesus 
and our sinful nature is confronted with Jesus, our sinful nature wants to rebel against his lordship. Our sinful nature wants to uh, push back against that. Our sinful nature to the lordship of Jesus is in its rawest form a rebellion against his lordship. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. He goes on to say, you used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He, the devil, is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Uh, Paul continues, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else, Paul says. And so Paul is saying, and what Matthew is painting here is this picture of the human self, the sinful part of our human nature that in its rawest form rebels against the lordship of God. In Herod, we see uh, in us a propensity to use our free will to gain autonomy from God, to remove God from the picture of our life. So if the Magi represent those who are outside and unworthy, Herod represents those who are inside, who know even maybe what the scriptures say, but refuse to surrender their lives to follow and obey in their living what the scriptures teach. So in this, Matthew's painting a picture of two kingdoms, the kingdom of Herod and the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of Herod that wants to rebel against the lordship of Christ in our life and the kingdom of Christ in seen in the child who grows up to be a man who walked in full obedience to his father, who is for us the renewal of everything God had started in Genesis 1. Dallas Willard says this, our kingdom is simply the range of our effective will. Whatever we genuinely have the say over is in our kingdom. And our having to say over something is precisely what places it within our kingdom. In creating human beings, God made them to rule, to reign, and to have dominion in a limited sphere. Now, God's own kingdom or rule is the range of his effective will where what he wants done is done. So here we see, and Dallas Willard is giving us a picture of our kingdom as can be seen in Herod versus the kingdom of God. And our kingdom is uh, are the things in our life that we have a say over. It's the things in our life that we, that we dominate, that we work to achieve and do, that we have some amount of control over. And the kingdom of God, conversely, are the things that are done that are the desires of God. And these two kingdoms clash in our lives every day. What we want, 
how we want to rule our own lives, what we envision for our future, what our plans are, what our desires are, what our thoughts are, what our motivations are, confronted with the kingdom of God, which is what his desire is what his plans are, what his purpose are. And in Herod, we see these, this violent confrontation happening. The Magi respond in humility and repentance, accepting the lordship of Jesus over their life, changing the way they live. The way they go home is different, but Herod refuses. He becomes obstinate. obstinate. So what is the kingdom that God has given me to rule or you to rule? I want to give you just um, six essential aspects of the human self. So these are our kingdom that we get to rule. There are thoughts, which are images, concepts, judgments, and inferences. Our feeling life, which are sensation and emotion, our choice, which is our will, our ability to make decisions, or our character. Our body, which are our actions and our interaction with the physical world. Our social context, which are personal and structural relations with others, the, the, the society that we live in, and our soul which is the factor that integrates all of the above into one life. So when we think of our kingdom, these are the things that we've been given responsibility over. And the question of Jesus and what Matthew is drawing us into in chapter two here is what's going to happen in your life and my life when we are confronted with the lordship of Jesus? Are we willing to surrender these aspects of our human self to the leadership of Jesus, or must we still assume our own leadership over them? Dallas Willard continues on, and he says, simply put, every human being thinks, has a thought life, feels, chooses, interacts with his or her body and its social context, and more or less, integrates all of the foregoing parts into one life. The ideal of the spiritual life in the Christian understanding is one where all of the essential parts of the human self are effectively organized around God as they are restored and sustained by him. So humanity under our own kingdom is where our will, our heart, and our spirit, our mind even, is under the controlling influence of our body. The, the, uh, the life that is directed by our kingdom, the kingdom of the flesh or the work of the flesh, the kind of life that Herod represented. It looks like this. I want to show you this. It's where the body and its desires drive the whole of life. So from the top here, we see body, soul, mind, thought, feeling, spirit, heart, will, where the body dominates, where what we see and desire and want take a place of primacy and lordship in our life. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 
8, verse 5 to 8, where he says, those who are dominated by the sinful nature, the flesh, think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile toward God. Herod is the epitome of this. He's the living example we see in Matthew 2 of what happens when the sinful nature comes into confrontation with the Lordship of Christ, with the child that Herod encountered. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. Verse eight, that's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. So humanity, when we are ruling our own kingdom, unwilling to surrender or yield to the kingdom of God, this is how our life is organized. Where our body and our desires drive the whole of our life. Dallas Willard says that action and response, our actions and responses never only come from our will alone, but it comes usually from the influence of all of these things, these parts of ourself on it. Herod was ruled by a mind set on the flesh. And so what Paul is talking about and what Herod experienced was the mind here set on the flesh as the flesh is the ruling dominant authority in its life. The mind is set on the flesh, which leads to death. Herod's response to Jesus, to the Lordship of Christ, to Emmanuel God with us is revolt and rejection. It's rebellion against that. That's the picture that Matthew is painting with the Magi. We have surrender because of the grace and mercy of God. We have a humbling and repentance and inherit. We have a rebellion and a pushing back. But there is the picture of humanity that Christ gave us, which is humanity under God's kingdom. And Matthew bringing the child into our frame here in chapter two is saying, look, here is an example of God's vision for how humanity can surrender its kingdom to the kingdom of God and allow God to rule over it. The humanity under God's kingdom rule is the inverse now. And here we see that the body is on the bottom. God is on the top. It's the body that serves the soul, the soul that serves the mind, and the mind, the spirit, and the spirit, God. This is the life that is set on things above. As Paul said, it's life ruled from above where what God desires and what flows from God is what is actually brought into and lived out in our life. This is what we see in the life of Jesus, the human Jesus that Matthew is giving us a picture of. We see what can happen in our lives when God calls us from afar, when, when God calls the unworthy the distant, the 
foreigner to himself in the Magi. And there's humility and repentance. We can bring ourselves under the kingdom rule of God, uh, of God. And we see in Jesus this example of the kingdom rule of God, where God's lordship becomes primary, where it's God himself who then directs our heart and our will, our decision-making and our determination. And it's God who directs our thoughts and our feelings, not our flesh and our desire. Where it's God who directs our body even and how we live in this world in a very real way. The child Jesus in Matthew 2 is the new genesis, the prototype, the example of how we today can live under the rule of God. And so Matthew is painting a theological picture of human nature now. What happens when human nature comes in to contact with and experiences the revelation of divine nature. Chapter one is divine nature, the nature of God, the character of God, the sovereignty of God. And chapter two is what happens when humanity comes into contact with it. And the questions we're left asking are, how are we responding today to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? We see as Matthew continues to trace in chapter two, this experience of Jesus. I'm gonna just pick it up in verse 12. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Jerusalem who were two years old and under. Based on the wise man's report of the star's first appearance, Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be confronted, for they are dead. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. And here, Matthew is actually painting the picture of the story of Israel from promised land into exile and into bondage and slavery, and then back under the promise of God, back under the leadership of God. And we see that what Matthew is sort of pointing out for us in this is that um, Jesus is the living example of how to come out of bondage, how to come out of slavery, how to come out of oppression, how to come out of our sinful nature and the bondage 
that we experience to sin and the kingdom of darkness, how to come out and under the lordship of Christ, back into the vision of God's life that he has for you and for me. That's what enabled Jesus to say what he did in Matthew 11. He was able himself to bring his whole life under the rule of God because of what he knew and understood about the nature and character and sovereignty of God. In Matthew 11, let's just jump back there. That's sort of where I started. It's where we're going to land here today. In Matthew 11, you know, before we get to Jesus's words and invitation to come to him, all who are weary and burdened, Jesus has heard about his cousin John, the man whom Jesus called the greatest prophet, the greatest prophet who'd ever lived, the greatest among those ever born in humanity. John stood heads and tails. He was the greatest example of humanity up until that point of how to walk in faithfulness to God. This John is in jail wasting away. And then Jesus begins to reflect as we move further through Matthew 11 in the towns and villages that had rejected him, that were obstinate, rejecting him and choosing defiance and rebellion and sin. Jesus, aware of all of that, aware of all of that in a human perspective that seems hopeless, disparaging and discouraging of anyone. Jesus, seeing everything for what it truly is, could have been overwhelmed by the weight of the situation, by the discouragement that he felt in life. And yet he says this in Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, just before we get to his invitation to come to him, all who are weary. As Jesus is recognizing John, the greatest prophet, is sitting in prison, unjustly, and people have been rejecting him and despising him. Nobody's, hardly anybody's really listening to him. He says, at that time, Jesus prayed this prayer, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever and for revealing them to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. This is the picture of Jesus understanding the sovereignty of God. My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Frederick Bruner says this about this few verses from Matthew. When Jesus could have been discouraged, just think about your life today and everything that's weighing on you and discouraging you and imagine for Jesus the incredible temptation or opportunity he had at this moment to be overwhelmed with discouragement. Bruner says when he could have been discouraged, the Father's sovereignty is a source of encouragement to him. Jesus says, thank you. Somehow and somewhere behind and above a discouraging world, our discouraging world right now, stands a poised father. I want you to hear this. If you've been distracted, if you're in the kitchen, come back right now. If you're distracted, I want you to hear this. 
Somewhere, somehow, behind and above a discouraging world stands a poised father, completely in control and utterly unfrustrated. To believe that human beings are the final arbiters of history is inevitably to become a whiner rather than a thanker because human irresponsible, irresponsibility does embitter. Bruner continues, the church needs, to, needs her master's acquiescence in the sovereignty of God if she is to have Jesus's poise in ministry. Excessive attention to an unresponsive world and insufficient appreciation of the relaxing reality of God's sovereignty can drive Christians into the slew of despond. I love that statement from him. Behind and above a discouraging world stands a poised father completely in control and utterly unfrustrated. This is the perspective that Jesus had of his father that allowed him to live the way he lived and this supernatural story, the origins of the life of Jesus for Matthew as he's teaching us today how to respond to the world that's around us that's overwhelming and discouraging that can lead us to despair and hopelessness. His picture for us, his instruction for us is to recapture the view of God that Jesus had. His picture for us is to recognize how we are responding to the Lordship of Jesus. Are we responding with repentance and faith and grace and trust, allowing our own kingdom to be increasingly ruled by God? Are we rebelling against him like Herod did, insisting that our way be the way, insisting that our vision for our life be the one that is lived? And Jesus comes into the middle of that and gives us a living, breathing human example of what it's like to live under the authority of God. I want to leave you with one last thought. Jesus' supernatural birth, incredibly supernatural bringing into life is then followed by a very unmiraculous fleeing from Israel into Egypt. And we don't see Joseph here pushing back on God and being offended that God would work supernaturally in one way or in one time in his life and not in another. Joseph allows God to be God. He follows his leadership. And so here's a few questions I want us to ask today as we land the plane on chapters one and two of Matthew. What is your view of God? Do you see God in the same way that Jesus did? Have you released God to work in his timing and in his way? Or are you holding on to your vision of how you want God to work in your own life, the timing that you're demanding for your own life, or your vision of what God must do in our society and culture around you, your vision of what government must be right now, or of what society must be, or even the church must be? Have you released like Jesus was able to, have you released all things to the Father 
who sees what you don't see and knows what you don't know and has power to move and to act that you don't have. Number three, what uh, character trait characterizes your interaction with God most today? Is it whining or thankfulness? Let's just stop there for a minute because that's super convicting. What most characterizes your thought life right now, your prayer life, your life of interaction with others or online, is it whining or thankfulness? Are you complaining mostly to God about what you don't like and what you see that you don't like and you know everything around you that you don't like? Are you thankful to him? for the ways that he has blessed you, for the ways that he has been faithful, for your truth, um, your knowledge of the truth, not your truth, your knowledge of the truth, that God will be faithful to you, that God always acts and responds for our best well-being. What characterizes your prayer life right now? What characterizes your natural disposition? Is it one of thankfulness first? Or is it one of complaining, embittered comments, criticism, harshness, or whining? Man, that's super convicting for me and for all of us. For me and for all of us, lastly, Are you more focused on what's happening around you than what God wants to do in you? These are the questions that we can ask from Matthew chapter one and two. So where are you on this? Where are you in relation to God? How is your heart right now? Is it fighting back and pushing against the sovereignty and lordship and kingdom of God because of the ideal picture you have for life? Are you able to surrender yourself fully into the hands of God, trusting him fully the way Jesus did? Let's just take a moment and pray today. Father, we just ask for uh, your grace to live the kind of life that Jesus did. Teach us to surrender our thinking and our feeling, our wants and our desires to you. Teach us to surrender our kingdom to your kingdom. Teach us to surrender our vision for our life, our demands of what it must look like or what you must look like or what you must do or when you must do it. Teach us to surrender those, to learn how to trust you and see you your sovereignty, your character, your nature the way that Jesus did so we can live the kind of life that Matthew describes here and that Jesus did. We trust you with our lives this week. Stop us, God, just in your grace, just gently kind of stop us when we are tempted to whine and criticize and fault find and Be bitter about life right now. Stop us and remind us that we have so much we must and can be thankful for. Teach us to actually lead with thankfulness in these days. Amen. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in 
and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.